Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In February 2010, Kentucky became the first state to adopt the Common Core State Standards in English and Math. And three years later, 45 states had adopted the standards. By that metric alone, you could say that the Common Core and the National Standards Movement was a bigger success than anyone would have predicted. But on this episode of the Report Card, we're going to hear from not one, but two authors of recently released books that make the argument that Common Core has failed and question whether content standards are capable of truly improving student learning. Joining us today are Tom Loveless and Morgan Polikoff. Tom Loveless served as the director of the Brown Center on Education Policy at the Brookings Institution, and before that, as a professor at Harvard University and a sixth grade teacher. In April, he released Between the State and the Schoolhouse, Understanding the Failure of Common Core. And Morgan Polikoff is an associate professor of education at USC's Rossier School of Education. His book, also hot off the press, is Beyond Standards, The Fragmentation of Education Governance and the Promise of Curriculum Reform. Tom, Morgan, welcome to the report card. Thanks. Thank you. So for a lot of folks, the term Common Core conjures up memories of confusing math homework and Facebook posts from frustrated parents. But before we get too far into the episode, let's lay the groundwork. What exactly is the Common Core? And more generally, what are content standards? Morgan, can you take us through? Sure, yeah. So content standards are basically lists of material that teachers are supposed to teach and students are supposed to know and be able to do. And content standards have been sort of a centerpiece of education policy in the U.S. for about 30 years. And prior to the Common Core in about 2010, content standards were typically written in states and implemented in states. And Common Core tried to take what was primarily a state level uh, issue and make it more national in a sort of voluntary, quote unquote, voluntary way. So states came together with funding from prominent philanthropies, and Tom can talk more about where this all came from, and wrote a set of common standards that then 40 states adopted. So instead of each state having different standards, now 40 plus states had the same standards, the same expectations for what students are supposed to know and be able to do in each grade. An important question here to try and keep these lanes clear is to differentiate between standards and curriculum. Tom, what's the difference between these two? Well, standards, as Morgan just said, standards lay out what uh, kids are supposed to be taught uh, on a grade by grade basis. Curriculum is defined as the materials then that kids experience in the teaching in the classroom. So teachers may adopt uh, different textbook series, or they may bring in ancillary material, materials of their own uh, from outside uh, the school or district. So the curriculum really has to do with the actual teaching and learning that goes on in a classroom and the materials that are engaged. Gotcha. So the Common Core is more the, the framework, not the, the details of uh, what goes on in classroom. Tom, I think you were going to give a more concrete example of the difference between content standards and curriculum. Yes. So a standard could be some. Let, let, me, let me ask you a priming question for that. Um, so, Tom, give me a concrete example of this difference between curriculum and content standards. Sure. So one of the third grade standards in mathematics has to do with uh, students knowing equivalent fractions, uh, very basic fractions, like one half equals two fourths. That would be a standard. 
the actual textbook or curriculum materials that the teacher uses to teach that concept would be curriculum. Gotcha. So the, the Common Core was an effort around these content standards to establish a framework for what kids should know at, at what age. But how did this develop? I mean, when we think about the history of the Common Core, and in both your books, I think you touch on uh, the Reagan administration's Nation at Risk report, uh, as well as No Child Left Behind, which came in 2001. How did those and subsequent developments lead to the Common Core's uh, success and adoption? Tom? Well, No Child Left Behind is important because one of the charges against No Child Left Behind was that it um, it encouraged a race to the bottom, that what states were doing since they were allowed to develop their own standards, develop their own tests, and set their own cut points for proficiency, that they were essentially watering these things down and setting bars that were exceptionally low. So the idea, of, one of the ideas of Common Core and one of the objectives was to raise expectations and to do it for everybody uh, in all states. There were these famous lines by Bill Gates, you know, why should mathematics in Arkansas be different from mathematics in Alaska, that kind of thing. So that, that at least uh, in response to No Child Left Behind, that was one important factor. As far as, you know, the success of Common Core, I mean, the first step is just getting these states to adopt it. And the adoption was pretty widespread. I mean, miraculously widespread by, by most measures. Um, what were the tailwinds that led so many states to signing up? Well, No Child Left Behind was struggling in Congress. There, there had been uh, several efforts to reauthorize No Child Left Behind, and those did not happen. And so the uh, Obama administration under Secretary Arne Duncan was using uh, waivers for uh, No Child Left Behind as a, as a policy lever to get states to adopt portions of the Obama agenda in education. So that was one um, of the catalysts for states then to adopt uh, standards. Also, in the 1990s, there were attempts under the Clinton administration to have national standards, and um, those ran into political turmoil, mainly due to battles between progressives uh, in education and traditionalists. So these are inside baseball fights over the content of mathematics and English language arts. And the Common Core authors managed to really quell those disputes. Uh, they did it quite cleverly by including uh, some aspects to both English uh, ELA standards and the math standards that would appeal to both sides. So that's the backdrop, the sort of nationals, uh, national standards movement in the 90s, and then also the sort of looming, um, withering away of NCLB. And, and to be clear, I think that, you know, there, there are good arguments and there were at the time for moving from state standards to a more national standards. And, uh, you know, uh, there was some research that was done by me and my PhD advisor, Andy Porter, that looked at state to state differences in the content of standards and found that they were really quite disparate. So mathematics really was quite different in Alaska and, and Arkansas. And while we might laugh at Bill Gates now for that line, there's also some truth to it, which is, you know, it, it's a, a, in many ways, you know, an increasingly national economy or, or maybe even a global economy. And there are arguments about whether, you know, state to state variations in content standards are defensible. Um, there are other reasons you might support more national standards, things like 
the extent to which they uh, enable better curriculum materials. So, you know, one argument was that prior state to state standards ended up sort of encouraging textbook publishers to have to publish these really sort of watered down mile wide inch deep curriculum materials that were responsive to all state standards, as opposed to something more focused and aligned to a, a common sort of standard. So there were sort of intellectual arguments for a more national approach. And we're one of the only countries that doesn't do that. Also, also politically, uh, it's important to note that there were elites in uh, Washington, both in terms of liberals and conservatives who were uh, supporting Common Core. And that was very important to its adoption in the state. So you had conservatives such as, you know, Checker Finn and Mike Petrilli uh, of the Fordham Institution supporting uh, Common Core. And you also had Education Trust and some of the civil rights groups and the teachers union supporting Common Core. So there was a broad coalition of political elites in Washington uh, who supported Common Core. It seems like there was a, a number of things going for uh, the Common Core's adoption, and and we'll talk about how it played out in a moment. But one one last question, uh, Morgan, across the states, was there an appetite for these changes? I mean, in the states that would have to make these changes, was the attitude like, yeah, we are on board with this, or is it something that you would say before the Common Core movement came? Uh, there wasn't a lot of appetite across the states to um, revamp their standards in sort of this national framework. Well, I think there was a window, and I think Tom is right in centering on, you know, dissatisfaction with MCLB. Um, you know, typically states were revising their content standards like every seven to 10 years. And so we were about that far post MCLB. I think many states were thinking about um, new standards. And I think, you know, the Obama administration seized on this policy window. Um, I don't know that that state leaders were necessarily on their own thinking of these things. I think that there were, you know, big philanthropies at work. You know, there were organizations like the Council of Chief State School Officers and Great City Schools, other organizations that were promoting this idea. And it just kind of hit at almost the perfect political moment. Um, to, to be as wide, as wildly successful as it was in terms of getting adopted. Let's talk about uh, what went wrong and, and why. And so let me just um, throw a couple of options out there and, and see what you think. A big effort like this seems to me could fail on either or both of these axes. Either the theory of action is wrong from the start. They just didn't anticipate that the Common Core standards would affect the change that it was expected to when uh, the rubber met the road, or that it was just a fumbled implementation. Good idea, could have worked, but it just wasn't implemented correctly. Where do you fall on that? Morgan, I'll ask you to go first. I mean, is it both or one, uh, one of the two really bears more weight? I lean much more I mean, listen, the implementation sucks is, uh, is a response that people apply to everything that doesn't work in education. So <laughs> right. of course there is some truth to that, but I lean much more on the theory of action doesn't make sense. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think it's in part the theory of action for Common Core in particular, but actually it's much more about the theory of action for standards in general. And remember the idea of standards is you're trying to get 3 million teachers and 13,000 school districts across the country to basically be teaching the same thing. 
But what are the policy instruments that you're using there? You're creating this set of standards, which if you ever go and read a set of standards, it's really not clear how you would take that set of standards and implement it in the classroom. You're not doing, in most states, you're not doing anything to really meaningfully support teachers in implementing that by requiring or encouraging school districts to adopt high quality materials. And so especially for those first four or five years of the standards, a lot of the materials out there were not good and were widely seen as not being aligned with standards. You're doing very little to sort of monitor and support implementation in the classroom, right? And so even if you get a book adopted that's high quality and aligned, what teachers actually do in the classroom, you know, 90% of teachers are on Pinterest and Google downloading resources to use the next day or the next week. And so this theory by which this sort of high level distal reform, this set of standards is going to drive instructional change in 3 million classrooms without all these, without a great deal of more structure in between from state departments of education and curriculum materials, and et cetera. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and that's why I think that it, it just didn't happen. Tom, what's your take on the difference between sort of theory of action or implementation? Theory of action. I think it was flawed from the beginning and Common Core was doomed to fail as all standards uh, won't have much impact. I, I say in my book, it doesn't matter. You could adopt a set of standards. You could let me write a set of standards where I agree with everything that's written. I usually agree with what I write. And, uh, and I still don't think Common Core would succeed. The, the system is just too complex. It's just, there are too many layers to the system. You have to understand two things about standards. One is they're aspirational. So they're like a diet or a budget. They're simply a goal and they're not always realistic. And the second thing is the system is so complex. Essentially what standards are is they're a regulatory tool. So they're, they're an approach, a regulatory approach to improving schooling. And um, the idea that the top of the system at the state level is somehow going to set a set of dictates down that will filter down through districts and down into through schools and down into classrooms. Um, this, this is just far-fetched. It, it never works out very well. Let, let me just briefly draw out a, one, I think, difference between me and Tom that I think is important here, which is, uh, so I agree with what he just said, um, that you know these high-level dictates aren't going to influence what goes on in the classroom. But I think, and I don't know if Tom agrees with me on this, I think that they could if, they, if the state actually wanted to and if they actually implemented policy that would allow that to happen. And, and I write about this quite a lot in my book, like a more muscular or a more aggressive state role in curriculum. So it would go beyond just writing the set of standards to things like maybe actually mandating that every school district in the state use just one of two or three aligned curriculum materials, right? Or, or, or encouraging or mandating uh, sort of curriculum-oriented professional development that was provided at the state level. Those are things that states could do, but choose not to do. And so what I say in the book is it's sort of like the people who came up with standards were sort of vaguely right in their diagnosis of what the problem was. But then they sort of gave away the whole farm by only writing a set of standards and leaving all this middle stuff, which Tom rightly points out, to sort of the vagaries of you know, individual school districts and individual teachers in the classroom. That is where uh, Morgan and I disagree. Because I think what Morgan ultimately is calling for is 
it, it's not that regulation's a bad idea. It's not the it's not that uh, the state is trying to regulate the activities of classrooms. It's that they are not doing it rigorously enough. That they need to actually be stronger and more muscular, as he just put it, uh, in their approach. And I I think that that will ultimately fail as well. I, regardless of how draconian the state is, the fact is the state can't run schools. It can't even run districts. Um, we, we have a pretty good literature on that. And uh, the idea that the state is going to uh, not just change teacher behavior, but change teachers who are resisting the state dictates. Because in the end, uh, if you have teachers who are already following, say, Common Core or any other set of standards, you don't need to change their behaviors. You, you actually want to promote them. It's the teachers who uh, resist that. Uh, they're the targets of the reform. Richard Elmore had this wonderful phrase about any time we try to regulate curriculum and instruction, we, we witness the power of the bottom over the top. And I think even just tightening the screws uh, would still fail. So let me repeat back what I've heard to just draw this to a point. Morgan, it seems to me that you're saying if you want to achieve the goals that Common Core was trying to do, you're going to need a more muscular command and control structure within states to achieve that. And Tom, you're saying, well, you could do that, but I don't think it would be effective and it would fall apart without garnering much more success than the Common Core was able to. Yep, that's right. Yes. And I, and I think there's another problem too with that approach. And I, I mentioned standards are aspirational. In some cases, what standards are asking teachers to do are things that no one on this earth knows how to do. Uh, so for example, kids who are three, four, five years behind in mathematics, demanding that they somehow teach them successfully algebra in eighth grade or ninth grade is, is a pipe dream. It, it is not gonna happen. And there's no country on earth that knows how to do that. There's no teacher who knows how to do that. There are no materials that know how to do that. So. That's when standards really get sticky is when they ask for the, uh, the unrealistic outcomes. So let me ask about the thing that we haven't mentioned yet, which I think was a big part of this theory of action was, well, we don't have a big command and control system, but we're going to use these tests and they're going to be aligned. And that's going to be the stick that's going to actually push teachers to, you know, measure up to the common core. So without getting into the entire, you know, maelstrom of the, the testing debates, how did the, the Common Core aligned assessments, both, uh, you know, Smarter Balanced and PARC, but, but also the other ones that weren't part of the consortia, how did they play into this? And were they an effective means of promoting better adoption and implementation of the standards? Or were they basically failed instruments as well? Yeah. So, I mean, at the same time that Common Core was being adopted, the feds funded two large testing consortia, Smarter Balance and Park, that I think at the beginning had over 40 states in them between the two. And what we saw over time was when Common Core became politically controversial, which was, I don't know, I can't, who, who has a memory of time anymore, but, you know, something around like 2013, 14, something like that, they started to become politically controversial and started to become a little bit partisan, and in particular, conservatives pushing back on Common Core, I think. You had many states sort of throwing the test away, but keeping the standards as a way of sort of staying in Common Core. And so 
over time, the number of states in one of these two consortia dwindled. And I actually don't even know how many states are using one or another of the of the tests at this point. One of them, I don't think exists anymore. They just create items. What, what I will say is that the tests, you know, I led a study uh, with Fordham that was fo that evaluated the tests against the what was seen as the prior best in class tests, the MCAS from Massachusetts. And we did find that they were sort of modest incremental improvements over prior state tests. I don't think that they were sort of revolutionary, but they hit all kinds of problems. Like, you know, they were widely seen as being way too long, right? So, you know, kids sitting for eight hours of testing. For, I mean, just, just really, really, um, uh, really challenging. You know, there were like always, you know, concerns about individual items that, you know, I, I remember there was an, I think there was an item about a pineapple or something like that, that was very confusing. That's right. Um, and, and those kinds of things feed into it. And then there's just sort of a general and growing anti-test movement that I think in some ways was inspired by these common core consortia, but, but certainly is still growing even today. Um, and, and that undermined the test too. So there were all kinds of technical issues. So the test really, I think, sort of fell apart and didn't end up supporting the standards how they should have. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I, there are about 18 states that still use Smarter Balance and uh, PARC no longer exists. It just sells items. There are four or five states that use PARC items in their tests. But I think the tests actually, um, they didn't help Common Core, but they almost are a separate story from Common Core. One thing they did do was they fired up the anti-standardized testing crowd, which tends to be politically on the left. Mm -hmm. So that then added to the kind of bipartisan opposition that Common Core faced. But for the most part, I think the tests, uh, they're fine, but they're not over the top, you know. Yeah, it seems to me that one thing that they might have done in Common Core was when faced with a lot of the backlash, you could drop the test as a state, as an action item to cede to people who were against Common Core without, without overhauling all your standards yet again. And it seems like because of that, they were sort of the sacrificial lamb a lot of the time, whereas the standards actually didn't get uh, thrown overboard quite, quite as rapidly as we might have seen. Uh, without those tests. True. That's true. One thing I think would be important to point out, though, and I do point this out in my book, there, there is a lingering aspect of Smarter Balance that will soon be important once we get back to regular schooling and testing. And that is when you look at the 11th grade Smarter Balance pass rates in math, it's around 32% the last time we had a, a test administered to everybody, which was uh, which was 2019. Um, actually, there's a 2018 data that I'm uh, talking about, but 32%. So if 32%, if, if that's the percentage of kids who are college and career ready in mathematics in 11th grade, then uh, there's a problem. That standard is way too high. That cut point is too high. Um, there are four levels on the test in terms of performance. The top two are considered passing or indicating college and career readiness. So I, I think states will have to revisit where these cut points are. And I think there'll be pressure on the uh, Smarter Balance Consortium to lower that cut point. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to briefly mention in response to your point about throwing the tests out as a way to save the standards. Another thing that states did, which I think is sort of important, 
was they did things like renaming the standards or doing a review of the standards and then adopting quote unquote new standards that were like 98% the same as the standards or adding in a few standards per grade. Of course, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the most common standard that was added back to Common Core was cursive. Um, and, you know, and these were things that were efforts to preserve the, the sort of core and spirit of the standards and sort of solve those political problems. And, you know, it's almost trite to think about these sort of low level debates about education policy now when I think things are going completely crazy on policy with all this civic stuff that's happening and blowing up. One interesting thing about this, though, is that even if they weren't effective at achieving the, the, the goals that they set out to do, the standards seem pretty durable. I mean, they haven't been thrown overboard. And even when, you know, Florida called them the sunshine standards, they're, they're still pretty much the common core in, in, in Florida. So that raises the particular question, to what extent do we think common core actually affected classroom practice? Because you could fall short of its lofty goals and still expect there to have been at least some material changes in classroom practice and potentially some improvements. So on that front, do we think that there was some moving of the needle by Common Core? I think Common Core did have an impact on certain practices. Uh, there's no question. So in ELA, I think there's a greater emphasis now placed on writing um, in the ELA block. Uh, teachers in all grades, I think, are, are emphasizing um, composition more than they did before Common Core. I think there was a shift and it's continuing a little bit of a shift, but a shift away from fiction and towards the teaching of more nonfiction. I also think in terms of mathematics that, uh, and I don't think this is a good thing. It sounds like a good thing, but never is a good thing. I think there's been a greater emphasis on conceptual understanding in the teaching of mathematics and a move away from teaching uh, procedural proficiency. Um, so I, I think Common Core did have an impact. The, the key thing here is none of those things are necessarily related to achievement. So you can do all those things. It doesn't mean kids know more math or know more ELA. Morgan, on classroom practice, how much change do you think might have been affected? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Tom. There have been some, some sort of high-level changes in teachers' instructional practices, and I agree with the ones that he mentioned. I think, you know, but there is also some sort of countervailing evidence, you know, uh, uh, just as a few examples I think, uh, you know, Rand has done some some studies where they've tested teachers knowledge of what's actually in the standards and found really uh, actually surprisingly low levels of knowledge about what's in grade level standards. You know, and mathematics is something like a third of teachers could correctly identify two of four standards that were supposed to be taught in their grade. Um, and, you know, and, and I don't want to blame teachers for that sort of thing. Again, if you go and actually read the standards and uh, try and understand them, they're complicated. And I don't think that everyone would want to memorize what's in their grade level standards. But there is still a, a lack of knowledge. And I think in part because of a lack of quality materials for teachers about what's in the standards. And I think there are misconceptions. I mean, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my book is when, when I went out and interviewed teachers about what was in the standards and, and 
what what were the changes in their instruction, they almost never talked about specific content. They almost always talked about practices, things like, well, we're doing more student-centered teaching or more student exploration. And those are not things that are in the standards, really. I mean, they're, they're sort of vaguely in the math practice standards if you squint at them. But it, so I, I don't think that the message about specific content really got down there. And, and again, I think that that's because of all these, these intermediate things like lack of quality curriculum materials, et cetera. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, as a classroom teacher, as a former classroom teacher, I went through this in the 1980s, the decade that I taught a thousand years ago. We had a big change, a revolutionary change towards math reform. And all of the math reformers in my district took those revolutionary standards that were written in 1985 and then again in 1992 and they interpreted them in such a way that they told teachers look you have to do math completely differently and of course the standards didn't mandate that but um, what happens is administrators take advantage of standards in order to try to enact some of their own beliefs uh, and so teachers don't always hear an accurate portrayal of uh, standards by the time they get to the classroom yeah, I can remember trying to struggle with the Maryland State voluntary curriculum when I was a teacher and hating that three-inch notebook of verbose uh, teacher speak, or, or perhaps not teacher speak. Uh, Morgan, your book is is called Beyond Standards, right? The Promise of Curricular Form, weighing two things sort of differently here. And in this discussion, we're sort of getting at this distance between the standards and what teachers actually use. Is there hope for some standards-based reform in your mind, short of the more proximal tools that teachers use, like curriculum, textbooks, and those more specific things? Or are, are, are we talking about you, you know an effort to change standards that's just too far distant, too easily manipulated to sort of confidently make systemic change? I mean, my opinion at this point is basically, unless you're willing to, for lack of a better term, tell teachers what to do and really enforce that, then the answer is you can't really drive the kind of instructional change that you want to see. So I, I don't think that standards absent, you know, really high quality curriculum reform and not just buying books and putting them in the back of the room, but actually expecting that teachers use them, building a culture in schools where teachers are collaborating on actually using the core materials and, you know, when they need to supplement, supplementing collaboratively and doing so, you know, relatively and frequently, that sort of thing. If you don't do those kinds of things, it's just not going to happen because there's, there's too many ways for the, the standards to get misinterpreted, you know, as Tom says, for administrators or whoever to use them to sort of foist their pet ideas on the classroom and, and we just have a culture, a long-standing culture in American teaching of the curriculum is the domain of the teacher. And unless you're willing to challenge that, it's just not going to happen. There's another aspect too, and that has to do with the nature of teaching itself, because teachers don't only make curriculum decisions and instructional decisions based on standards. They, they make decisions based on their kids sitting in front of them. So if you have kids, to go back to my example, kids three to four years below grade level, your grade level curriculum that's handed to you is virtually worthless. 
uh, you're just not going to be able to use it very well. That's an important aspect of teaching. Teaching is very contingent upon the students and what the students already know and already can do. And any standard that comes down the pike, no matter where it's developed, state level, district, no matter where, it will be reshaped and modified by the teacher so the kids can access that knowledge. And if they can't, if they can't do that, then, then they're not doing their job. We've talked a lot about why the Common Core didn't work on the things that it was trying to do, uh, why it may not have helped. Are there places where you would say that the Common Core harmed schools? Are there things that the Common Core made harder or more controversial? Are there things that are harder now than it would have been had the Common Core never happened? One thing that I'm a little bit concerned about, and, other, and I haven't seen super great research on this, but I, I know that other people are talking about it, is that there seems to be a widening disparity between high and low achievers in the U.S. that really since Common Core, um, where, you know, like the, the 10th percentile on NAEP has really fallen off, where the 90th percentile at the top is, is actually continuing to rise, and that gap is getting quite a bit wider. And I suspect that that might have something to do with the standards and the way that they were implemented. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Tom, I, and I'm not a, even though I have a math background, I don't think of myself as a, as, a, as a math curriculum expert, but I have this sense that when math is trying to be taught conceptually and it's taught poorly, that that is much worse than uh, the sort of status quo of a sort of more traditional procedural approach to mathematics. And I worry that 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 could actually have been harmful to low achievers. Uh, and and I, I wonder if Tom has thoughts on that. I think that's possible. Um, I just, you know, the, as, as you just said, that the, the tying the widening disparities between high achievers and low achievers, which I agree, I think it's a real phenomenon. It's showing up in lots of tests. It shows up on PISA and TIMS as well as uh, on NAEP. However, tying that to Common Core, that's where I get, uh, causally, the evidence is not that strong. So I, I actually think in mathematics, this emphasis on conceptual understanding in math is larger than Common Core. If you take the five states that did not adopt the Common Core math standards and read their standards, which they did adopt around the same time, they also emphasize, like Texas, Alaska, Nebraska, Virginia, they also uh, emphasize conceptual understanding. So there was a math reform movement that's supra uh, common core and uh, all the state standards show that. And so then that would explain that it probably wasn't common core that did that. But I think there, uh, there has been something wrong with the direction we headed uh, in the late 2000s up to around 2010 with how we teach math. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that the sort of isomorphism or just the, the tendency of everybody to kind of glom onto the same practice led with that. Let me ask one, one more thing about Common Core, and that is, were there any states that really did it right, where they really were able to jump in? Maybe Morgan, like you said, willing to be more muscular, willing to exercise a com command and control system um, that they already had, or to develop one to get better outcomes and a better application of the standards? Well, the state that a lot of people point to, and I certainly talk a lot about in my book, is Louisiana. Um, Louisiana, I, you know, under John White, uh, 
really bought into this idea that curriculum materials were the heart of uh, standards implementation. And so when they, so, you know, they created this tiered system for ranking materials. And then when they, the top tier books on tier one, you know, really strongly all but mandated districts to adopt those materials. When they saw that there weren't sufficient materials in English language arts that, that they felt met the state standards, they actually went out and created them, the Louisiana guidebooks. And those are now used by, I think, more than three quarters of all Louisiana school districts. They provide, the state itself provides curriculum aligned professional development on the guidebooks um, over the summer to something like to thousands of educators. And they have seen, you know, Rand has done some research on them that has shown some differences between Louisiana teachers and teachers in other states in terms of their knowledge of the standards and their reported implementation of some practices. So I think that that's a state that a lot of people are looking to. And, and that sort of model, I think, is spreading a little bit. So you have states like Rhode Island that are sort of buying into that kind of approach now. I'm, I'm personally optimistic about that, but but it, it still certainly didn't get you all the way there. And it's not like Louisiana's results on NAEP are through the roof or anything like that. But I do think that there is some evidence that it, that it did meaningfully drive instruction uh, more so than other states' approaches. Tom, any states that you think might provide a, a hope for standards-based reform if done substantially differently? Not really. Um, not really. Uh, I don't think any state has you know, stood out as... Um as just making huge strides because of standards. So I, no, I, I wouldn't point to any. I will point to one fear that I have, and, and I see this all the time. And that is that what happens with standards is the standards become like a fetish and they become the most important criterion then of evaluating curriculum. And I don't think they should be. So. For example, Ed Reports, which I spent some time critiquing. Ed Reports is an organization that uh, reviews curriculum in math and ELA and then uh, puts a stamp of approval on it if it's aligned with Common Core. That has nothing to do, being aligned with Common Core has nothing to do with being effective. And so there are textbook materials and there are uh, textbook series out there, Math and Focus is one that we have randomized trials, control trials, uh, showing that they're effective at teaching mathematics, and yet they're not aligned with Common Core, because they actually, Math and Focus, which is based on Singapore math, actually moves kids too quickly through the curriculum. And that's its violation. Uh, when, the, when, the comment, when the Ed Reports reviewers reviewed that math series, they kept saying, no, this isn't a third grade standard, it's a fourth grade standard. No, this isn't a fourth grade standard, it's a sixth grade standard. So you have a very effective series, and we know that from some experimental research, that is not approved. And it's not approved because it doesn't align with the standards. Uh, so that's one thing I do get concerned about. I think we need much more, and Morgan's written on this extensively, we need to equip schools and teachers with much more knowledge about what are the uh, materials out there that are effective. So what are the good materials? And that has nothing to do with being aligned with Common Core. So Tom, I'm, I'm gonna ask Morgan a very similar question in a minute, but your book, Between the State and the Schoolhouse on Common Core, what's the big takeaway that listeners should take from your work looking over the, the decade or more since the Common Core was rolled out? Uh, I think the big takeaway is if you want to improve schooling, we need to know more about effective curriculum and effective instruction. 
And until we do the very expensive and long and tiring work of figuring out better materials and better instructional approaches, this idea that just setting high standards for everybody and then regulating from the top down, that will not work. And it's a poor substitute for more knowledge of the technical skills that go into producing knowledge in kids. And Morgan, to ask a similar question to you, your book isn't solely on Common Core. It covers standards more generally. So beyond standards, the fragmentation of education governance and the promise of curriculum reform, uh, what's the big takeaway that you would have listeners know that they're going to get from your book when they read it? Well, for a long time, we've been trying to use policy to drive instructional change. And I think the argument of the book is that basically our policies have been inadequate, right? Standards have been inadequate and will continue to be inadequate for that very challenging goal, right? So if you're gonna try and drive instructional change, and I think that you should um, uh, through policy, you have to be much more assertive. And so that means uh, really a curriculum oriented reform and really a very serious look at the ways that decentralization of educational systems and structures perpetuates instruct both instructional mediocrity, but then also a lot of other kinds of negative things like segregation in schools. So beyond standards, an app name for uh, a book with that message. Mm -hmm. Morgan, Tom, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about the Common Core. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the report card and special thanks to our guests, Tom Loveless and Morgan Polakoff. We'll include links to both Tom and Morgan's books in the show notes today. I also want to thank our producer, Matt Rice, who makes this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. You can send your comments, questions, and topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. 